it's valuable and it cannot be held by physical hands, it's probably worth holding on to. This is Immaterial Treasures. I'm your host, Danfee Parker. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Immaterial Treasures. Today, I have a very interesting guest. His name is Alan Gilman. Alan has become a friend. And it's funny that I call him a friend because he could be my father twice. <laughs> no, he's not that old, but um, he is an older man, but he's been a friend for a few years now. I met Alan about, was it four years ago? Something like that. Yeah, four years ago. Um, and it was at a winter retreat that Amy and I went to um, to be at with her family. And there was a guest speaker. And I remember we were, I think her mom was encouraging us to come listen to the guest speaker. And I didn't really think they were going to have any like really good speakers at a winter retreat. I mean, it was very small. So I was like, okay, no one's really going to be there. But anyways, Amy was like, we should go check it out, see who it is. And uh, reluctantly, we I went and Alan was speaking and I started listening to him and I was like, huh. So I started listening further and I was like, this guy has a way of like communicating. He's like really good. And then it went on and then I, the content of what he was saying was compelling. So I was like, wow, I was really intrigued. And then he got my attention. So after that moment, after listening, listening to him speak, I just immediately like just attacked him with a bunch of questions. And I was, uh, I was picking his brain about lots of different things. And I was really fascinated with just the way he looked at the Bible, the way he taught the Bible, the way he viewed God, um, and I was really interested. And from then on, Alan was very friendly enough to, you know, lend me his contacts. And we've kept in touch here and there. And sometimes when he comes to Toronto, he does live in Ottawa. He comes in and says hello. So here's Alan. I'm in Ottawa um, this weekend. Uh, and so I got an opportunity to get him on the podcast. So here's Alan, Alan Gilman. Yeah, Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. I didn't know the full background of, uh, of our meetings. So that was, uh, I didn't know about the reluctancy. Oh, yeah, so I'm glad it, it worked out. Yeah, I know it was it was great. I think uh, Amy and I were very glad after we had gone to you to hear you speak that we did that. Yeah, I remember it was a delight. So, yeah, no, it's great here. It's great, and um, been been thinking about trying to get you on the podcast for a while, but I couldn't work out the perfect time. And so, coming this weekend was a risk too to reach out to you, hoping that you would be available. And as you always are, you always make yourself available <laughs> to me. So that was uh, that was great. My pleasure. Who is Alan Gilman? <laughs> I'm still trying to find that out, um, but we're not having a counseling session, so I'll move on. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, both my wife and I grew up in, in Montreal, and uh, we're both from Jewish families, and we still consider ourselves Jewish. It's, it's kind of funny, um, and I had this conversation with somebody recently. Um, there's so many different names for believers, um, and to be honest, I if somebody directly asks me, am I a Christian? I'll say yes, based on how I think they understand what a Christian is. But I actually avoid that term, not because I'm trying to hide anything, but because it's, in many ways, it's misunderstood. And it's, and it's really misunderstood among our own people. Because to the, to the Jewish mind and Jewish culture, a Christian is a non-Jew. Um, I grew up, uh, growing up in Montreal, Christian and non-Jew were synonymous. You know, Back mm-hmm. in those days, and I'm 62 now, we didn't have the, the the international dynamic of cultures that our major urban centers have today. Um, the, the 
Canada was was a reflection of the Europe that a lot of people had immigrated from. And so uh, for a lot of Christians in Canada, the only real non-Christian group were the Jewish people. And the Jewish people understood that we were the minority in the majority Christian world. Right. Uh, I remember being in, in public school and filling in a form and we had surname and Christian name. And, you know, for a Jewish person, what's that? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we were told, well, that's your first name. But it's, uh, you know, we actually felt growing up that we, that we were among a people different from ourselves. And um, so I, I wasn't raised religious. I grew up in a very strong um, Jewish community where almost everybody knew, um, even in the public school that I went, that was for, for everyone. Uh, the schools I went to were like 90% Jewish people and uh, the Jewish world, Jewish communities uh, in, in places like Canada are very diverse. So there were some people that were quite religious, but the majority were not religious. We did, we ourselves and my family, we didn't consider ourselves religious, but I still, I had a bar mitzvah and we celebrate different ho- of the holidays. And I, I think for a lot of non-Jewish people, they might think that's strange because well, that doesn't that mean you were religious if you celebrate the holidays? Well, it's not really like that. It really, really comes down to is being Jewish is is not really uh, being part of a religion as much as being part of a people. Mm-hmm. Um, and as being part of that people, one of the ways that we understood ourselves is we didn't believe in this Jesus that the Christians believed in. He had nothing to do with with us and and growing up i i didn't understand the jewish connections of 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 the new testament to the old testament um i didn't under really understand that for the christians jesus was the messiah that we had been waiting for mm. um, all we knew is that jesus was like the god of of these christians that's really all all mm-hmm. we knew mm-hmm. so um so I grew up in in, in this Jewish family. Um, I also came from a very um, a dysfunctional family. Uh, my memories of my of my parents was a lot of yelling and screaming. They split for a year when I was about eight. Then after they got back together again, they were together for a few years and divorced finally when I was about fifteen. I had a nervous breakdown when I was eleven. Uh, that seemed to come from all the angst and and and. Uh, all the junk in, in my household ended up in the hospital for three weeks. When Neil Armstrong was walking on the moon, I was in the Jewish General Hospital in observation wow. for, uh, for my, uh, my issues. Um, got out of the hospital, kind of improved, lived a life of a preteen, then a teenager. And then around approaching 19, I started getting quite depressed um, and started having panic attacks. And I got to the point I really didn't know what I was going to do with myself. At that time, my, my father had um, stopped paying alimony. He never paid child support, so we ended up on welfare. Our life, our, and by that time, it was just me and my mother at home. I had three over, older brothers, but they were, weren't much in the picture. And um, uh, yeah, I was really at a dead end. Um, life didn't seem to have much promise. Um, I was just trying to have fun, and um, I, was, I was really, really lost. And I developed a great fear of death. And there I was kind of in this dark black hole. And I remember it was a Wednesday uh, in September, early September, 1976, sitting in my bed in my room. I started banging the mattress, pulling my hair. 
um, saying, what am I going to do? I don't know if that was a prayer. I don't remember uh, addressing God. I didn't have any concept of God in my life, but I, I was really at the end of myself. And so then two days later, I ended up going to a friend's house to see a, a cousin of the friend and a bunch of other people came over and I ended up talking to this boyfriend of an old high school friend. I'd heard of this guy. His name was John. I'd never met him before till this day. We ended up in the living room alone together and I asked him what he did and he told me he preached the word of the Lord and he was also Jewish. Um, all these friends were Jewish and I'd never heard this from anybody, let alone from a Jewish guy. Right. And so we just started talking and he began to share why he believed that the Bible was the word of God, that uh, he believed God had his son and, and that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. Three things I really didn't believe. I don't know how much time we have now, but um, he began to explain the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls and how the Dead Sea Scrolls showed that the Old Testament manuscripts had been miraculously uh uh, preserved through centuries. I'd never heard that story before. It was quite impressive. Um, and I guess that partly helped me to continue our conversation as he began to show me next the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. I didn't know about the Messianic prophecies. I'd never mm -hmm. read the Bible, Old or New Testaments. The New Testament was taboo as far as I was concerned. It's like the forbidden book. I knew the Old Testament was our book, our Bible, but never read it. Um, certainly never had seen the prophecies before. And then he began to show me um, how uh, in the Bible, the Old Testament, Jewish Bible, God predicted the birthplace of the Messiah, um, how he would be rejected, um, how, that he would teach in parables, that he'd be born of a virgin, um, and um, that he'd be pierced, and, and so on. And eventually took me to Isaiah 53 that reads like a play-by-play -play of the rejection, mm -hmm. crucifixion, and resurrection of the Messiah. And I was totally totally blown away by what I saw. And then he explained to me uh, the concept of sin. No one had ever explained this before, that somebody broke a commandment. Breaking a commandment is a sin. Somebody who sins was a sinner. And I thought, oh, that really makes sense, which in that moment I didn't realize was actually a huge miracle in my heart because I'd gotten to the point where I was so miserable and I was blaming everybody else for, for my pain that I decided as, a, as an almost 19-year-old that I was never going to say I was sorry to anyone ever again. And my reasoning was that it is if I did something that I didn't mean to do somebody, I didn't have to say I was sorry. And if I did something I meant to do, I wasn't going to say I was sorry. Mm. And now this guy is telling me that I'm a sinner and I'm thinking, okay, I, I could accept that. And just to come to that place where I was able to look at my life and seeing that I'd blown it, was huge and then he explained that if um i would say a prayer and ask jesus to forgive me my sins and come into my life that god would make himself real to me that he'd actually give me signs i didn't know that there's this new testament passage about jews want to see signs right but i think it's partly because even the non-religious among us we know some of the stories and we know that our stories of god have god doing stuff Mm -hmm. And so if there is a true God and he's not just a myth, then he's going to do stuff. And so John was telling me that if I took this step and said this prayer, then God would respond. And I thought, I could live with that. Like this wasn't joining just some group. Um, my mother, then when I told her about this the next day, she was all freaked out that I had joined this cult. And in this <laughs> latter half of the 70s, there was a lot of, 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 of stories about brainwashing and cult groups and all the rest. She had reason to be afraid. She knew how emotionally unstable I was. 
And uh, so she was quite concerned, but I was concerned too. I didn't want to be let in on something. And I knew at the time that the way John presented this to me, it was take the step and God will prove himself. So I thought I can live with that. I can do that. And also I realized that everything to gain and nothing to lose. And so, um, and there's much more to the story. Um, but, um, even though it was over an hour and a half on this Friday afternoon, September the 3rd, 1976, um, we, I said this prayer and I told John, don't call me, I'll call you. And off I went to a rock concert that night. And, <laughs> what uh, rock concert? ELO, the Electric Light Orchestra. Uh, and, okay. uh, yeah, outdoor concert, Place de Nation at the old expo site in Montreal. Those who know about the place know exactly what I'm talking about. And they were amazing. <laughs> um, but um, anyway... Um, I, I felt, I, I, I'm, when, when John led me in this prayer, um, I just remember it, was, it felt significant. I can't say that I felt changed. I just, it was something beautiful about it. And then he went on, I told my friend that I went to the concert with about what happened, and he wasn't really that impressed. And, and um, it was uh, over 24 hours later, I'd gone to a party, and I, I remember, like yesterday, I'm sitting on these stairs of this basement, and everyone's milling around and dancing downstairs. And I'm sitting there thinking, I haven't had a panic attack in 24 hours, first time in a couple of weeks. And that really mm. got my attention. Like, what is this? And um, that kept on for the next several days. It would, and it would be a couple of weeks before I would be in touch with John again and get more information and get my own Bible, start reading it. Um, God was simply working in my heart. And, and he seemed to be making himself real to me. I called them signs. They were just interesting coincidences at the time. Only God knows if it really was God doing these little miraculous things. But um, frankly, I was on the lookout for them and it seemed to be real. Um, yeah. And what was real is I was beginning to change. So my mother, who I, I told about what happened to me the night before, the day before, so September the 4th, I'm talking to my mom. She freaked out. Uh, thought I'd fallen into the wrong hands. So she was all concerned. And I, I share that to say that three months later, she also came to believe. And the thing that w encouraged her the most was the change in my life. Mm. God had totally transformed my life uh, by through this newfound faith of mine. Um, so much has transpired in uh, 76. So we're now at... Um, it's 43 years. A lot oh, has happened since right. then, and including the fact of me having to deal with, with anxiety since then and some of those struggles. And even to this day, I'm, I'm fighting some of those, the specters from the past or whatever they are, and have learned that, that in my struggle with some of these things, God has, God has shown his reality to me over and over and over again through these years. Mm. Wow. So the this big change in your life right your mom was the first person that kind of responded to the change in a positive way there's actually another friend who i shared that in fact it was a very interesting time um so what happened was after i kind of got sold on this i got really really excited about it and i used to i told was telling all my friends and i would take them to talk to john and john would give them the same presentation and many of them had said the prayer and almost none of them stuck uh, but I did have one friend who I shared what happened to me and, and, and basically same as John shared with me. And she took the step of faith and God transformed her too. And she had her own story of, of she had a physical ailment um, and that disappeared overnight after wow. she asked uh, the Messiah into her heart. Wow. Those are quite the days. 
Yeah, so that, that's amazing. And even coming to recognize that Jesus was your Messiah. Yeah. Um, groundbreaking. Was there any anybody around at that time that just completely perhaps would was taking what John was arguing, uh, especially even about the prophecy of Isaiah 53, uh, and saying that, oh, no, this means something different. Did you find any, like, resistance in that way? Um, I had so many conversations, especially in those first early years, um, whether it's with rabbis, friends, uh, strangers, all sorts of people. And um, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what you're asking of just be challenged left right and center mm-hmm. one of my friends wanted to he told me he wanted to know where john wesley could kill him um, oh wow and uh, whether he was serious or not, i don't know but that emphasizes how upset this particular jewish friend was um i had all all sorts of conversations um the most of the thing that was most upsetting was the time I ended up chatting with a, a high school acquaintance, ex high school, like post high school at this point, and somebody I, was an acquaintance from high school who had become a Jehovah Witness, and we ended up having a conversation, and it really messed me up. It took me a while to work through some of the things that he told me. It's not really answering your question, but that that was one of the most upsetting. There's that one. And there was this other time we ended up in the apartment of these very religious Jewish people, um, and um, the conversation got rather more personal, and I was getting more personally attacked, and I remember struggling with doubts um, just because of of how belittled I felt mm. uh, from an older person putting down this faith of ours, and and I remember taking a shower and asking God to to take away the doubts. And I, I remember it was almost like a physical experience; I could actually feel the doubts being taken out of my heart. Um, only God knows how all that stuff works, but I, I remember that. And and you know, if I, the more I think of all these years ago uh, of some of these conversations that I've had. And again, the most difficult ones, um, and this, I'm going to be thinking about this more later is the, the personal ones when they get personal and, and make you made, made me feel stupid for believing what I was mm. believing when it came to the actual substance, you know, we, if you want, we can have a conversation about what some Jewish people think of Isaiah 53, but I don't recall having a direct conversation with somebody that, that was trying to go at it from a interpretive point of view, academic right. point of view with me. I, like I know some of those arguments because I've, I've, I've studied all this, but you asked me personally, and personally I don't recall having those conversations. So it was more of like ridicule that like that was more of the attack and not something of like dealing with the actual substance like, hey, Alan, let's look at this from like a very objective perspective. Is right. what you're yeah, believing my struggle, plausible? Yeah, it's very interesting. Like, again, so I'm being very personal with you right now. And our, there was this, um, in those early years, I, I still had all, all my Jewish friends, a lot of, of, of contacts. I worked in Jewish camping for, for years and was very well entrenched in the Jewish community. And, and so I, that's where my friends were. And these were the conver- where the conversations were. And I had a period where the topic of my faith had come up quite a bit with a lot of different people. 
and just sharing from various angles the truth that I believe from the Bible, Old and New Testaments. And a lot of these, and we're all young people, so we're all like 18, 19, 20, 21 kind of age group. And many of these folks had, had been impacted by what I was sharing with them. And in this organizational setting, um, some uh, someone else involved in, in the organization um, observed that many of these many of these folks had um, responded negatively to what I was sharing. What had happened was I shared convincing arguments about the truth of Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, but they didn't want to accept him. Mm. And I understand all this dynamics. This is, this is, these are my people. This is the community I grew up in. I understand the cost. I understand the motives. Um, and... It, but it was quite something how obviously these people were kind of getting what I was sharing, but they didn't want it. And there were some people, uh, it was at a camp, and some of them were having trouble working because they were so emotionally affected. And so my supervisor at the time, we were talking, and he knew about how these people were being seemingly negatively impacted by me. And he even said to me, if anybody's going to hell, it's me wow. because of how I was negatively affecting those people. Well, you can imagine how that made me feel. I love these people. I love right. the person that said this to me. These were not only my fellow workers, these were my friends. They were like family to me. And I'm being blamed for their, their, de like their depression. And I remember being on a day off in the middle of the summer. I was at home. And thinking about this and feeling so bad, and I, I don't know if I was praying or what happened, but somehow the Lord spoke to me, reminded me of that story of uh, what we call the rich young ruler who comes to the Messiah, to, to Jesus. I, I like to call him Yeshua now. That's his real name, his mm -hmm. Hebrew name. And he came to Yeshua and he, and he asked him, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord speaks to him. And, and if you remember, he didn't want to do what Yeshua wanted him to do. And it says, and he went away sad. I thought, oh, that has to do with his response. That's not Yeshua's fault. Yeshua mm -hmm. told him the truth. And I'm not saying I, I spoke the truth as well as the Messiah can, but I was able to see that I shared the truth as I understood it, and their negative reaction was their response, and I wasn't responsible for that. Right. And God really helped me with that. So back again. So most of the struggles I've had have been more on this kind of personal right. rather than... Um, you know, objective uh, kind of arguments. Right. That's really interesting. And I can only, I have a bunch of questions just running through my head of like, how do you overcome that? How do you keep, how do you keep going? How do you keep holding on to the faith? And it seems from what I'm hearing that you were already, you were persuaded. It's just the relational aspects may have made it difficult to persist in, in like continuing. Yeah. It's, it's this, where our conversation has gone, Danfi, is fascinating because I'm, while some of these stories have been on my mind, I don't recall ever talking about them in this kind of context. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding it really helpful for myself and I'm be thinking about it more after we're done. Um, but most of my struggles as a human being since those days have been these personal ones. And, and I, I grew up in a, 
house full of, of anxiety and, and, and depression and despair and fear. And I wish I could say that that days on September, September the 3rd, it all ended. It's mm. not the case. And I've struggled with many of these things since, but I can, well, I tell you, I tell other people, God rescued me that day and he's been rescuing me ever since. And um, I wish I didn't struggle with some of this stuff, but over and over again, God has, has kept me from following, not following, but falling into the abyss of, of darkness. Mm. And it's been one of the ways he's proved to me about how real he is, because I know um, how I could have lost it. Mm-hmm. And yet whether it's been through circumstances, whether it's been through somebody calling me up unexpectedly with the right thing to say, whether it's simply being something changing in my heart, like where in the world did that come from? I know I have encountered the real immaterial reality in Mm. God through Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. And what the scriptures say about him have been objectively and personally real in my life. And he's shown up over and over and over and over again. You know, um, the Bible talks about God being the good, sh- the, uh, the shepherd, David, in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And, and Yeshua picks that up in John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. And, and it reminds us that he's the one who's leading us. It's, we, we're to be his followers, but he's leading us. And he even knows when to bring us back into line mm-hmm. and, now, I can't talk for other people, but I know for myself, he's done it with me over and over and over and over again. That's amazing. That's amazing. I can really hear your heart and see your heart. <laughs> Most people can't see it, but I see it right now. Um, you said something earlier about being Jewish uh, isn't a religion. It's because you said you still you still are Jewish. Um and it's not, and I know that you are still Jewish. I'm asking because I want some clarity on that because you said it's not, um, it's not a religion. It's, it's, it's more for, yeah, it's, like a people. it's a people. Yeah. Can you unpack that a bit? And yeah. how did that also, that idea, how did you have to wrestle with that when you became a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, as being Jewish, being a people that goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God right. in, uh, in his, wisdom initiating his rescue plan for planet earth as i like to call it uh, calls uh, an elderly childless man to become a great nation and we read about this in the book of genesis the first book of the bible and he develops through this man abraham a nation through whom he will reveal himself to the world mm-hmm. and so the nation that god creates through abraham isaac and jacob um is a nation with a strong spiritual, call it religious component, but we're first and foremost a people. Mm-hmm. It's all about who my great, 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 great grandparents are. That we're connected uh, to the the people that God formed for Himself uh, uh, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So right. we are a people. Now it's a people with a a spiritual, a large spiritual religious component but we're foremost of people. And that's why in the Jewish mind today, um, you could be religious, you could be non-religious. Um, it doesn't matter. It, it, 
a Jewish person is a Jewish person, and there's a wide range of how people um, understand their Jewishness. And by and large, the Jewish community uh, affirms the uh, the Jewishness of 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 all Jewish people. Um, me and my family, it, uh, for those of us that they perceive have left the Jewish fold, um, we're we might be looked at in negative terms, but by and large, most Jewish people don't do that. Most Jewish people, even though they find it strange that we believe in this kind of, they think it's a non-Jewish religion, um, would still accept us as Jewish. Um, now, the, the other part that's so important about this is our faith as believing in the Jewish Messiah, we believe, with all due respect to our Jewish relatives and, and other Jewish people and Jewish community that don't agree with us, we are believing the most Jewish thing there is. Mm. Um, Pilate, uh, the Roman governor that, that crucified Jesus, was mocking Jesus and the Jewish people, but he was saying the truth. It's one of the most ironic statements ever made when he put over his head the king of the, the Jews. King, yeah. That's exactly who he is. Um, and... Interestingly, one of the things that Jewish people, by and large, uh, um, struggle with is our identity. What does it mean to be Jewish? Is it about right. Israel? Is it about the religion? Is it about the food? Is it about family? What What is it like? What is and is it worth it? Like, uh, you know, there's anti-Semitism in the world. Like, why do we keep uh, perpetuating our peoplehood? Is and again, is it worth it? But what does it mean? And um, that's such a common thing. My coming to believe in the Jewish Messiah is the thing that resolved my Jewish identity. I know mm. who I am as a child, both spiritually and physically. I'm a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm walking in the faith of our fathers. Um, the God that David sings about in the Psalms is our God. Um, most of the Jewish people I know are either disconnected from David's reality and Isaiah's and Moses and all the rest, and even for religious Jewish people, they would admit that their understanding of the Jewish God is is their religious expression of Judaism, not the heartfelt, um, bluesy kind of expressions of David in the Psalms, mm -hmm. um, or the experience of God of Isaiah, or the experience of God of the other prophets and Elijah. Like we don't see our the Jewish community doesn't see ourselves reflected in our biblical heroes. It's like that's them back then uh, when people thought differently and in the pre-scientific age, right. and, and that's kind of like our myth, whether it's real or not real, doesn't really matter. That's Those are our ancient stories. But for the Jewish believer in, in Yeshua, who's been filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, that's spoken about in the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, we come to know the same God of, of our ancient people and experience him in the same way. Um, it's, it's, the, it's the most Jewish thing that we could do. Right. Now, historically, there's been so many non-Jewish influences that have been integrated into the faith of, of believing in, in Jesus. Uh, he's, he's, the way he's pictured in, in art, he doesn't look very Jewish. Right. And a lot of uh, the, everything from the songs to the buildings to all the rest uh, don't seem to reflect what I would call his essential Jewishness. And I would like to see a lot of that restored because I, 
not only is that better for our own people to understand that Jesus is our Messiah, first and foremost, but I think there's a lot that the church and Christianity is missing because it's lost some of its its Jewish rootage and, right. and would benefit from being better connected to its own history that's found in the Bible. It's funny you said that, like, the image, even the the, the common Im- image that's circulated of Jesus is, is not something that you guys could connect with. Whereas, like, I know this might sound like a really silly question, so bear with me. <laughs> but I, you said something earlier when we were talking on the phone uh, the other day. And you said that one of the stumbling blocks for Jewish people when it comes to Christianity is the fact that it's so European whitewashed. Uh, whitewashed racially <laughs> yeah and and i found that i found that amusing because i thought well most of the jewish people i've met are white <laughs> like, like they look white to me like as a black person I, I look like you you look european you have the european features and everything and yet i hear you saying that that's been that kind of image has been sometimes an oppressive image the european you know, because of the anti-Semitism mm-hmm. that's arisen out of that. Um, can you speak a little bit, un- like, what's the relationship with, like, most do most Jewish people today see themselves as white people? Do they, do they align themselves with the Caucasian image, the Caucasian culture, or do they see themselves differently? Okay, there's so much to the questions. So I know. I'm, to I'm sorry. See how I could, You're I, a very uh, smart man, so uh, I was hoping wow. you would remember it all. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. yeah, God help me. Um <laughs> So on one hand, historically, I could see how the non-European, non-Western world would look at Europe, you know, white Europe, white North America, and perceive the Jewish people as just kind of dissolved in that white mass. Right. But that's not the Jewish experience, and it's not the white European experience either, because... um, in the history of Europe, and then that gets transferred to North America, by and large, the Jewish world was the only real minority. The, there weren't that much others. So you had the Christians and you had the Jews, by and large. And there were others, but, but in, that's mainly the narrative. And so when we come to North, in the North America experience, you've got the Christian world, mm-hmm mainly white, at least they're dominating the society. Because of course you have, there have been there've been people of color in North America for a long, long time, and particularly uh, people of color for, of African origin. And you have the, the whole, uh, you know, the, the uh, American slavery and Canadian slavery that we never hear about. Right. But that's the main rootage of many of the black people as, that would have been in Canada when I was a kid, right, right, you know, African people coming from Africa would be later, right, right, um, as well as, and I remember hearing stories, and it it sounds strange to us now, but there was a, a well known teacher uh, who was born in India, an Indian man, and when he came to Toronto in the late '60s, he was like, was it one of fifty? Even if it was one of five hundred, whatever the number was, it's hard for us to picture that in the 1960s, there were so few people from East Asia, right? Right. And, and now, as you know, you know, Toronto is called the most ethnically diverse city in, in, in North America, if not 
North America at least. Right. And uh, so this is the, the world we have now, but it wasn't like that back then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there were Chinatowns in our major cities, but it's it, the diversity that we have today was not the type of diversity that we had back then. And um, Jewish people have always felt as the other group. And we were and we were treated like the other group. So, you know, I'm born in the late 50s. My eldest brother was born in the early 40s. And when he was university age, there were Jewish quotas at McGill University. Um, Jewish people were treated as other. So on one hand, uh, there is a bit of similarity in... in on one hand, I want to say yes, like the, the facial look. But no, Jewish people would be pointed out for our features and have always been pointed out because our features are different from the other white people. Mm-hmm. So I think we've always been seen as, as the other. Right. One of the, you may not know that one of the reasons for the Holocaust has to do with, with um, back in the, I think it's the 1800s or early, late 1700s, there was a thing called emancipation. Jewish people before then were living in ghettos, literal ghettos, locked at night neighborhoods. And emancipation was when the Jewish people were finally able to leave the ghetto and began to become integrated into the wider European society. Mm-hmm. It was a very successful venture and so successful that the majority culture resented it. And that's one of the things that led to the Holocaust because they didn't want the Jewish people to integrate with the rest, rest of, of white Europe. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and all those forces came down upon my people and, were, and they were almost successful. A um, third of, of world Jewry was exterminated in, in Europe uh, during, during the Holocaust. So, so much as being one of them. Right. So I could see from... Uh, the eyes of other ethnic groups, we look like Europeans. Right. And of course, there's some, because of intermarriage, uh, There's you, you get a bit of, 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 of that mixture. But by and large, we were not, and I would say still not today, uh, the Jewish world is not treated as, as part of a particular group. Now, maybe in some spheres of business and finance and other things, there's more integration today and people on the outside looking in might see Jewish people as part of the wider group, but in the Jewish experience, one way or another, we're always made to feel that we are different. Right. It's funny because even in the description of that, it sounds quite similar to the black experience in America, <laughs> you know, and uh, and I think some of most, or even more commonly, most African-American males or even women reject Christianity on the basis that it's a white man's religion and it's not something that speaks for them. They have no identity within it and stuff like that. So it's, which is really interesting because um, I remember when I got my first opportunity to teach in Haiti and I was really excited for the reason that I'm going to tell you. Um, I wanted to tell them my story and help them understand my own background as a Jewish person. And I don't know how much you know about the history of Haiti, but they were um, they were the, the the first slave colony to get independence, and they did it through a rebellion against mm-hmm. France. Well, what's the what's the Jewish story? We're slaves set free, right? Now, your white Europeans, I would imagine, have a hard time relating to that story. Mm-hmm. But how many 
in the black experience, especially in the Western world, right, can relate to that. That this that this we're sharing with people the story about how God wants to liberate the oppressed. Mm-hmm. Is that a white story? No. By and large, it's not, no, right? It's not. No. And, and yet they've the, you know, Western civilization has carried much of the Christian story forward, but I I believe in many ways they've lost touch with it. And and the biblical faith is not a white faith. It's a it's it's a Middle Eastern one. It's far more brown than white. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I think there might even be some truth to the to this idea that Jerusalem is the center of the entire world, which in there's you know people used to talk about it that way, and and it'd be interesting even to look at it geographically. There might be some truth to that. It, it's almost like the belly button of, of planet Earth, <laughs> and and there's something about how cultures collide and have have mixed in that part of the world that then could take the truth of God from that place, from where it was revealed, and then appeal to all the nations of the world. Right. A very interesting uh, aspect of, of how gospel truth got to the nations. You know, we, we start with God in Old Testament days developing a very specific and separate nation, the people of Israel, and gave them rules and regulations that would actually separate them from their neighbors. And that affected them in so many ways and affected their psyche to the point that they create even more rules and regulations to separate themselves from others and would even understandably look down upon other people because they are not the chosen we're the chosen Mm -hmm. and that sort of idea and yet in the new testament acts chapter 15 we see the early believers grappling with what are we going to do now there's these non-jews that want to believe in our jewish messiah what are we going to do with them and they develop policies that set the word of god free and unleash it into the nations of the world without jewish control and to think that this little group of 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 Jewish people with their limited world experience and all they had was God, the Messiah, and his spirit and was given the wisdom to set God's word free to all the nations of the world. Sadly, the recipients of God's word have not always passed that same sentiment on, Mm -hmm. but have instead tried to control the groups they were reaching out to, try to control them culturally. They couldn't understand that what God wanted in this thing we call the gospel, the good news, by believing in the Jewish Messiah, that we're to have uh, a unity and diversity. That's the real essence of what God wants for all the people of the earth. Sadly, People of, of, of the dominant white culture still don't seem to get that. I run into that all the time. Even more sadly, people outside of that culture reflect the same kind of prejudice. And as followers of the Jewish Messiah, we need to learn that we exist not for ourselves, but for others. That's what those early Jewish believers learned, and they learned it the hard way, but they did learn it. And it's tough reaching into another cultural sphere, cultural group, whether they've been the oppressors or, or, or not. But we have in the scriptures and through the power of God, the ability to reach over those, those cultural barriers and reflect the reality of God to these other people groups. Mm-hmm. And I can understand even the difficulty of like stretching into a people group that you're one separate from, but, the larger narrative of the fact that not only are you reaching out, but this person also becomes a brother. That's right. To share in the same inheritance equally. 
And we know and once it's family, then we're all going to get along, right? Right. No. The closer <laughs> we get to each other, the challenges increase. They don't right. decrease. Right. And, and yet that seems to be what God wants. Like he seems maybe one day he'll smooth our differences out better than they are now. For now, it seems he wants to bring us close to each other and learn to forgive and be patient and, mm-hmm. and deal with the, the pain that we seem to cause each other rather than, than going into our comfortable little subgroups where we're kind of all the same and we have this kind of illusionary experience of all getting along. Right. But even in those situations, we may not. Right. He really wants to challenge us to learn how to love people that are different from ourselves. I mean, that message stands true even in natural families. Yes, it does. <laughs> it I mean, does. it's 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 difficult as you, yeah, grow and get to know each other and it's the messiest, but the commitment is is what makes the family, right? Yep. Um, with uh, God's help and that's and we can only do it with his help. And that's what he wants. He, right. wa- he doesn't want us to do this by ourselves. Right, right. Um, that's really telling. Uh, so I have a, another question. So as you grapple with the, you've you've obviously grown exponentially in your faith and uh this is to ask for somebody that may be listening that's jewish and not a christian um, if you had an audience with that one person what exactly would you where what angle would you take uh in the same tone if you had an audience with a large group of jewish people what would be the most essential thing you think if you had like i mean like 15 minutes to communicate what this gospel is about. What do you think you would emphasize the most? Well, hopefully I'd have enough time to pray in, in each of those situations, um, especially though if I'm going to be asked to give a more formal talk to a group of people. Uh, will I have time to find out a little bit about them, where they're coming from, what their interests are, uh, what's the purpose of, of that meeting, and so on, to try to discern why am I there and what's mm-hmm. what, how can I, I best serve these people um, in, in that situation? Um, regardless, even so if I didn't have the time, I'd be asking God for help to guide me to try to have enough sensitivity to know what to say because there's no one package formula thing to, to present to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, in this hypothetical these two hypothetical things that, that you're presenting in, in the real life situation, it, it, I'm not being given enough information. So I would, I would so, kind of pray and then go for it. If, if I knew nothing, uh, <laughs> if I knew absolutely nothing, I would pray and then, you know, go from what I believe God is showing me in my heart to, to share. Right. So, okay, so I'll make it easier. So for Thank the you. individual, <laughs> I, I had a friend at work that is Jewish, and I think I was trying to share with her the gospel. And one of the things she said was, I feel as though Christianity is too easy. Um, and I, I seems like you just repent about something, and that's it. She said, you know, I mean, she's like, in Judaism, we believe in forgiveness, but forgiveness has more of a, a more sincere, you, for, you ask for forgiveness, and you don't. You try not to do that thing again. Whereas like she, it almost, for her, it seemed like Christianity seemed too loose. Right. And, that, and I think there's a lot of Christians that feel that way about how some Christians see forgiveness. So she wouldn't be alone as a Jewish voice speaking into, the, into that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, there is 
a concern on those in the Jewish world that are interested in such things. You know, most Jewish people are like other people. They don't think about these things. This person you're mentioning, obviously, thinks about this and, and has thought about it not only from a Jewish point of view, but in contrast to her perception of at least what, how some Christians see this same issue. Um, there is a concern, I have picked this up, that there's a concern in, in the Jewish world that, that Christianity does make life seem to be kind of too trivial. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we need to take more responsibility for our lives than just going to confession, let's say, that exists in some Christian traditions. Like, oh, you just, you do, there's a perception of, oh, you just do what you want. Like, you do what you want on Saturday night and then and go to confession on Sunday and all's good. Mm-hmm. Now, I would share that concern because I that version of, of forgiveness, that kind of cheap forgiveness, it just doesn't seem to be the, the biblical version. The biblical version is something that, that has far more depth. Now, Judaism has lost touch with sacrifice. Uh, we know it, those who are aware know it's part of our history in the past, but we've been living without sacrifice for 2,000 years and have gotten used to it. And, um, and so we don't image in our minds the costliness of forgiveness, mm-hmm. which is really what's supposed to be in the mind of, of the Jesus follower that it costs God everything by giving his son as that great sacrifice to pay for our sins. So that would be one of the things to emphasize, that sin and wrongdoing is costly and serious, and we should be in awe of being forgiven. And then we don't relate to God and his forgiveness in a flippant way, mm-hmm. even though we can find a certainty in our acceptance by God. Now, in, in Jewish understanding, and it's in, in some ways very correct, um, our relationship to God, at least as a people, nationally, is based on what God has done. He chose us. We didn't choose him. Mm-hmm. And who we are as Jewish peoples are based on what he did by making promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's unchanging. And there's a security in knowing that. Um, where the Jewish world has has gone astray in my opinion is they have forgotten that we as individuals need to connect with that reality by trusting in God and particularly in uh, receiving the Jewish Messiah into our lives. Mm-hmm. Now the Christian world, the, the part of the Christian world that still believes in a personal relationship with God through his son, the Messiah, Jesus, uh, they have that down pat, the personal relationship. But even there, there are Christians that live with this uncertainty that if I blow it today, that I'm lost. And then others that that take his forgiveness almost so for granted that it doesn't matter what I do. When actually the biblical viewpoint is 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 more complicated than that. That God has made a way for us to know him. Uh, we need to take our sins seriously. If we're not allowing God to to work in our lives and change us and lead us in his godly ways, maybe we don't actually know him after all. So I would be concerned, along with your friend, um, if if they've encountered people flippant about forgiveness, then maybe they've never really encountered forgiveness in the first place. Right. So, and I'm going to help you with uh, refine my question as far as like addressing a whole group of Jewish people. Uh-huh. Um, let's say you had to 
deal specifically with their observances. So the Sabbath, the traditions, and you need to speak to that. Like, I'm not I, too sure why I would do that. Like Sorry. in a sense, like what is, um, why are you still doing it? Like, cause they're pointing to something, right? No, why wouldn't they do it? <laughs> but, okay. So let's, 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 let's so unpack they, that. Why yeah. wouldn't they do it? Like, so it's totally fine. Like most, most of the observances in Judaism are, are good and, and many of them are biblical. Right. And the New Testament is pretty clear that, uh, especially for Jewish people that have been, have been observing these things, both the, the very biblical ones and the traditional ways of doing the biblical ones, they are more than free to continue doing them. Right. Uh, but are they not pointing to something? To God? And their rem- their their expressions of the covenant God made with mm-hmm. uh, with our ancestors. Now, when we talk about observances, we're usually referring to what God revealed to and through Moses. And as I just said, um, I like I would have nothing to say about the observances ex- unless, for some reason, which I have trouble imagining doing this. Because I don't think many, most Jewish people don't observe the things in order to gain approval from God. Mm, okay. In the Jewish mind, we do the things because we've been approved by God. Okay. Okay. That doesn't mean that some people get that mixed up, but by and large, we, uh, <clears throat> our lives reflect who we are. We're back again. We're a people. As a people, what then is required of us? We don't do the things to become the people. We do the things because we are the people. Right. But in those, knowing that you are, you've already been approved by God, right? On one level, that's true. On, well, on a very real level, that's true. However, what about in the level of standing before God? Well, that's, see, that's backing what I was talking about as an individual. Like, so that's why when you ask the question about the observances... The observances themselves are not are not an issue, mm-hmm. um, and in the Jewish world, there's such diversity of what Jewish people observe, from zero to lots, right. and everything in between. Um, and uh, the real issue, though, is: Do you have the the personal relationship with God that Scripture calls you to? And that is only experienced in our day by knowing the Messiah. Right. And the observances are, in a sense, neither here nor there about that. So how do you personally know that you've been made right with God like Abraham was made right with God in, in Genesis 15 when God promises him that his descendants will be like the stars of the heavens and it says, and he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced that? And whether Jew or Gentile, have you come to that place where you have been reckoned righteous by God? And, and, and Paul spends time on this about how the essence of relationship with God is found by faith, trusting in God personally. Right. And we know with the coming of the Messiah that that experience will only happen through the acceptance of what the long-awaited Messiah has done for us. Right. So that's essentially what you could talk about. How do you know you've been made right yes. with God? If, you know, once <laughs> if we can get there. So if, if I had a carte blanche, like some people hear that um, there's this 
you know, crazy Jewish guy that happens to believe in Jesus. What's that all about? It's kind of interesting. We've heard about it sort of thing in the news. Um, some people seem to be upset by it. I wonder what he has to say. And they would just give me, like you have, given me the mic yeah. and go talk for 15 minutes. I would start with probably with some sort of personal story about how I came to faith, much of what, like what I shared earlier. Right. And, and then from there, try to bridge the gap uh, between... Um, well, helping the people to see that the essence of my faith that I've embraced is actually a Jewish faith. Right. That in some ways is kind of, it should be more curious to us that any non-Jew would want to believe in the Jewish Messiah and somehow restore the image of Jesus to his original Jewish context. Mm -hmm. That would be my desire anyway. Whether I could do that in 15 minutes or not, you'd have to try me. <laughs> right <laughs> right um this is this is a funny one because uh i was so i was with my brother-in-law a couple of days ago and he said he has uh someone in his church um who's there's a new movement where people are now observing the dietary laws so they want to observe everything i don't know if you're familiar with what with that and these are non-jewish people that want to observe everything within the scriptures the dietary laws civil laws everything um and part of that, one of the arguments is that um, Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So that emphasizes, that gives value to everything that's been given in the Old Testament for the Gentile to follow. How would you respond to that? That's a big question. Um, and I am very familiar with it. So often this approach goes by the name of Jewish roots, Jewish roots movement, mm -hmm. um, Torah observance, and, and this sort of thing. On one hand, people should be free to, f to follow their scruples and their, their, uh, their convictions. You know, somebody believes they shouldn't eat pork because they think God says they shouldn't eat pork. It's, it's not for other people to tell them to stop it. Um, and the best case scenario would be for this to be non-controversial and non-divisive. Mm-hmm. Because what's the big deal? What are we really arguing about here? Somebody feels somebody feels convicted they should be a vegetarian, for example. And I've I've run into this too, where they they believe from reading the Bible, um, and they and other other things in science and nutrition and some of these things. They come to the conclusion that bef and not just for themselves before God, they really think this is God's will for their life. Well, then what do you do with that information? Is, does that become the new thing you have to tell everybody? And if they're not listening to you, then they're sort of, uh, uh, they're not spiritual enough. They're, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Second-class citizens, and however you might think of this. And start looking down on these other people that are not getting it, This, mm -hmm. this whatever this it is. And that attitude, that attitude is, a, I think, is a problem. Um, and I think that's that kind of attitude is a problem that we face in all sorts of things where we disagree with one another. Um, with this particular approach, um, I do believe there are misunderstandings. Um, some of it arises from a lack of seriousness that much of the church has had towards the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, where for many people, um, for many people, the Old Testament has been either ignored or actually thought of as an, in a negative sort of way. Mm -hmm. When Paul teaches in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
verses um, 16 and 17, that all scripture is given by God and is profitable, and in my little paraphrase, profitable to enable us to live effective godly lives. Great. And when he was talking about the scriptures, he was talking about what we now call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. That was the Bible for the early believers. So clearly, not only we're not supposed to ignore the uh, the Hebrew scriptures, they're to be central to how we understand God in life. Right. So for some, they've spent years and years hearing negative things about the Old Testament. They finally realize that it's an essential part of God's word and they get very passionate about it. The passion itself is fine, but it should be an informed passion. And one of the things that people seem to to miss is the distinction between the particular things that God gave the Jewish people at a particular time and those things that are universal. And there are there's much in what God revealed to the people of Israel that is universal, and there are other things that are specific to them. Exactly which ones are which, I don't think is abundantly clear. And it takes work to figure out what's what. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty clear that God did not um, call the early Jewish believers to export the dietary laws. That's pretty clear in Acts chapter 15. I right. know some of the Jewish roots folks uh, disagree with me on this. Um, I don't see any evidence whatsoever in the pages of the New Testament that the specific regulations with regard to what to put in your mouth was to be passed on to um, jungle tribes that eat grubs. Mm. Now, should they eat grubs? We could have a discussion whether that's good for them. Akumaritana. <laughs> and, and there might, you know, when you see that God in the Old Testament cared about what po- people put in their mouths, and I know Jesus has things to say about that later on, but it could twig village elders to go, maybe there's a better way to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, you, and that fact that in some places missionaries have brought agriculture into some areas where it's been better for the people. Mm-hmm. That in terms of loving the people and helping them to live better lives that might be a good idea. But in terms of taking the specific dietary laws or the laws about mixing um, um, cloth and, and, and some of these other ones um, and saying that's for all people everywhere for all time, I, I don't see how you get from Moses to that. Right. On the other hand, we read about uh, letting the ground uh, be fallow every uh, seven years. And we've learned in agricultural science that it's better not to keep farming and farming and farming land year after year after year. It was already revealed in the Bible right. to give the land a rest. So uh, the missionaries go into a new cultural setting where they're having trouble with their crops. They discovered that they're exploiting the land. They never give the land a rest. And they show them in the, in the Bible that this is, is wise agriculture. Why would we... we we shouldn't keep that from them, but should we tell them, thus says the Lord, you must not, and I don't mm-hmm, think that's mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. Some people want a really easy answer to these questions. 
I think there's answers, but I don't think they're easy. I think they're a bit complicated and they require careful study, sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and wisdom in relating to people groups. Right. That said, I don't think there's this wholesale, oh, we found how this should be done. God commanded the people of Israel to keep these feasts, for example. They're called the feasts of the Lord. We love the Lord. Therefore, we're to keep these feasts. Uh, the fact of the matter is nobody's able to keep the feasts because there's no sacrifices today, and the sacrifices were core to keeping the feasts. So all we have are reminiscence, if that's even an English word, reminiscence of the feasts. Uh, the Jewish world does reminiscence of the feasts, and now some Christians think that all Christians should do the same reminiscence of the feasts, commemorating things that didn't actually happen to these people groups, but actually happened to my people group. And I think some of that's getting kind of messed up. Right. I think we should learn about the feast because it's Bible, but to then to tell believers they should do these things because it's in the Bible is is like they're they've they've jumped to a conclusion that isn't justified by the scripture. Right, um, and I like how you've kind of in a very roundabout descriptive way brought it together. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. The distinction here is that there are very practical things in the Old Testament that can still be modeled today. Anything that's taken from the Old Testament and propped up as this makes you righteous before God or not is what you know is not what you're yeah. well that's ac that's actually a good question because the regulations given through Moses were never designed to make people righteous people may have thought that eventually mm -hmm. um, and that had to do with the idea that if we kept these things then that shows that we're right with God Right. And that's not what they do. Now, if we're right with God, we do the things that God calls us to do. But it's not the doing them that makes, you. That makes us that. Right. And so that was never God's intention. Right. That's not, a, that's, that's not Moses. That's not God. That's, that's a, a twisted view of God's word. Now, were there people in, in Yeshua's day and even today that see God's regulations that way? Yes. But... Christians do this all the time with whatever regulations they yeah, make. Like yeah, they're in, in many communities, if you don't appear on certain days and if you don't give a certain amount, you don't dress you don't, a certain way. Right. And you don't use the right Bible translation, right. then there's something wrong with you. Right. So that attitude is is a human attitude. And it's not just about Old Testament, the good regulations of kindness and 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 godliness that we find in the pages of the Old Testament. That's not where the problem is. The problem is in how humans leverage even good things mm -hmm. and make them tokens of acceptance. When the only token of acceptance that we have in God is faith in Jesus. By trusting in him, which you can't fake, right. <laughs> by trusting in him and giving our lives to him and letting him take over our life, that's the only thing that gives us acceptance with God. And then from there are the fruits of that reality. And if it's real, we'll see those fruits. People will want to know the things that God wants them to do. And it doesn't need to be a super heavy because we're not doing them to get acceptance. Mm -hmm. We're doing these things because we are accepted. That's, that's great. Uh, I feel like we should end on that, but I have one more question. Okay. <laughs> what is your hope for the Jewish people? Just wow. in a quick summed well, up way. It's similar to what Paul says in, in the book of Romans. Uh, that um, and and biblical hope is not a wish, mm -hmm. and 
I don't know if it's a good distinction. It. Yeah. So I have a hope and it's based on what the Bible says. It, it took me um, years to understand this from a biblical point of view, but it, to me, it's become very, very clear that God had a plan and purpose for the people of Israel, uh, mainly to be blessing to the nations, which is mainly brought to f- its fullness through the Messiah. But he is committed to the preservation and the salvation of the people of Israel. And, and that is what we're looking forward to. That is our hope. That as it says in Romans 11, uh, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. And so there is going to be, I expect, a great, great awakening mm-hmm. of, of faith in Yeshua among our people. That's amazing. You always, uh, I'm, I'm, always, I'm, I'm curious to see how it's going to look. But I, I, I genuinely believe that as well. Yeah. Um, so if anybody's listening to this and then we get in contact with you, uh, would they be able to do that? Go to my website, alangilman.ca. Can you talk about Torabytes for a bit? Right. So Torabytes is uh, since uh, fall of 1997. I started doing a weekly commentary. It was like it's now people would call it a blog, but there weren't blogs yet as far as you know yeah. <laughs> back then. And uh, in, uh, in, the, in Jewish tradition, the five books of Moses are read on an annual cycle, and there are predefined sections, portions, uh, every week. And so, as is common in the Jewish world, I, I do a thought from that portion um, every week. And I called it Torah Bites. It's a pun. A Torah, the five books of Moses, <laughs> Computer Bites, because it was online. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so, I've, I'm still doing it today that... Uh, Every week I post, either I, I comment on the what's called the Torah portion from the books of Moses, or also there's a, um, an associated reading from the books of the prophets, and sometimes I, I comment on that instead. And so uh, you can go directly to torahbytes.org, that's T-O-R-A-H-B-Y-T-E-S dot org. Um, go right to the Torah Bytes site, or you could also get it through my more general teaching page, which is alangilma.ca. And it's Alan Gilman with one L in each name, A-L-A-N-G-I-L-M-A-N dot C-A. Yeah. And just so you know, whoever's listening, Alan is a speaker and a writer. So if you're ever looking for a speaker, he is very available. But keep in mind, he has 10 kids. Well, they're not little <laughs> anymore. I know. You didn't talk about that. No, You're 10 kids. I Can do. you just, just give a brief? I think it's really fascinating. And the age, like just the age range and how, how you know what? First of all, <laughs> I just want to commend you because I think, you have made yourself available to me anytime I've called or texted and you have 10 kids. <laughs> yeah, let's not picture that there's all these 10 little toddlers running around vying Fair. for your attention. But there's still, there's still your father and there's, you could be yeah. busy. There's people yeah. who have less and it's hard to communicate with, but I've always appreciated that from You're you. You're welcome. So, You're welcome. Um, talk so, a little yeah, bit about so, that. Yeah. So Robin, my wife and I have 10 children. We've got six girls and, and four boys. The ages range from 38 to almost 16. Um, Three of them are married. I'm hoping you're going to get this all correct. So uh, <laughs> three are married, and we have five grandchildren. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and they're involved in all sorts of amazing things, and we're super proud of them, and our, our, it's, we're a wild and crazy family, but grateful for God's blessing. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, thank you again for coming, and, uh, well, for doing this podcast. Appreciate it, Alan. Welcome. All right.